Hello and welcome back to our study of the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 9 now uh, of this study. And boy, we have been digging deep. And we just came off of chapters 6 and 7 and 8 uh, and really 5 before that um, where we discuss Jesus as a high priest. And it's such an important part of the argument that's being made in the book of Hebrews because we're talking about uh, Jesus ushering in a new covenant, a covenant that is better than the one that came before it, better than the old law, better than um, Moses as a lawgiver, uh, heaven, a better promised land than Canaan. And so Jesus as a high priest is very important because the function of the high priest was to be the conduit through which a relationship with God could be achieved. It was the, um, the focal point of all spiritual interaction was the high priest and the priesthood. They were the administrators of the law, the old law. And now we live under a new law, the law of Christ. So the argument has to be made within the, argu the broader argument <clears throat> that Jesus is, in fact, a high priest. And the comparison was made in chapter 7 to Melchizedek. Uh, and then in chapter uh, 8, uh, the purpose of this new priesthood uh, bears itself out that if we have a new priest, then we have a new law. And therefore, the old law has been done away with. And that's the whole point is he's... The, the, the writer here is trying to convince the audience that it's time to let go. Let go of that old law, let go of its customs and rituals because that's not going to get you closer. Uh, and most importantly, which was a problem in the early church, don't bind the customs and rituals and ordinances of that law on, on these, these new Christians. So now we come to chapter 9 <clears throat> because the author has talked about the, um, the high priest uh, Jesus and the priesthood and the new law. And now, chapter 9, even the first covenant had its regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And we've talked about that a little bit. Both in the tabernacle and later in the temple, we had this holy place. Uh, this place where where people came and reflected and worshipped God. But there was another room. Behind, verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So this Ark of the Covenant contained the emblems of that covenant, the staff that budded the jar of manna to, to uh, commemorate the provision of God and the law, of course, was in the covenant as well, or in the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark, uh, before Indiana Jones found it, was in the most holy place. It, it, it resided there because this was a representation of the promise God made, and at this altar, this Ark, was where God would dwell and where he would meet with the people through the high priest. <clears throat> Above it, verse 5, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, he's saying, you know all this. I'm not going to get into the weeds on it. Um, these preparations, verse 6, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, but not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. 
which is symbolic for the present age. So the author here is making a comparison. You have a holy place <clears throat> that was entered into by the priests where they performed rituals. The second place was separated by a curtain, a veil. And only the high priest could go back there. And he only went once a year. And he never went without a blood sacrifice to offer. That was what was required. The high priest with the blood can go behind the curtain and only at the, at the appropriate time. So he says that's an analogy because as long as that curtain is there, that first room is standing. That first room is still there. But once that curtain's removed, that first room is done away with. There's no need for it anymore. Uh, and that's what, he's, that's what he's saying. This is an analogy, a symbol of the present age. <clears throat> um, so as long as that first section is there, that second section is closed off. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But, verse 11, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, uh, the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Okay, what are we talking about? Well, using the analogy of the earthly tabernacle or the temple, you have two rooms. In one, rituals are performed. In the other, a very special event occurs where the high priest enters. He must go behind the curtain. He must be bringing blood, and that is offered as a sacrifice or an offering for sin. But as long as it stands like that, there is always going to be a separation between God and man. And so remember, we've established that Jesus is a high priest. Therefore, we've established there's a new law. So now, how does that function? It still functions, as we've said all along, as the realization of what the old law represented. That tabernacle, that holy place and most holy place, and the blood offering of the high priest, all of that was never the point. It was always a means to get people to the point. So they understood this structure and they understood how this worked. And because they understood that, they could now understand Jesus. It just took some explaining. You see, when you grow up in something and you're so focused on this culture and this law that is around you, when something comes along that's better or when something comes along that is in fact the perfect realization of what you understand, it's hard to see because you've gotten so ingrained in this holy place, most holy place, offering, etc., you don't see that Jesus himself has entered into the most holy place, not the physical one. He entered into the throne room of God through his death, and when he got there, he was bringing a blood sacrifice, a blood offering with him, and it was his own blood. So Jesus is the priest bringing the sacrifice to the feet of God, the sacrifice of himself, on our behalf, fulfilling his duty as the perfect high priest and fulfilling his duty as the sacrificial lamb and fulfilling his duty as our savior. And so he did this. Uh, and again, it wasn't the earthly tabernacle or temple. It was a heavenly one. It was of a different creation. And he did it one time and that's it. Once for all. Doesn't have to do it year after year. Just one time. And why, why is that important? Because the high priest had to do it every year. 
because the blood of the bulls and the goats and the calves, that was insufficient. It wasn't enough. It couldn't get the job done. But he did it one time with his blood and secured eternal redemption. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of uh, defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The syntax of that sentence is a bit difficult because we speak English and we like things like punctuation and commas and and Paul, or excuse me, I say Paul, that's my bias. Uh, people think Paul wrote this, but the author, but all New Testament writers didn't do that uh, because they didn't have punctuation. We've had to figure out where the sentences start and finish and it's challenging. So with, with Hebrews, which was most assuredly not written by Paul, but out of habit in the New Testament, I refer to Paul as the author, I guess. Um, in, uh, in Hebrews, in this sentence, in this verse, what we're talking about is a comparison. If this worked for the high priest, if the blood of an animal every year was sufficient to get to, to, to at least buy the patience of God against sin for a period of time, well, how much better is it that Jesus brought himself and in his own blood as the sacrifice? Therefore, verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Or excuse me, let me back up. Uh, <clears throat> to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the end of verse 14. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So because Jesus fills this role as the high priest and as the sacrifice, he becomes the intermediary, the mediator, the conduit of a new covenant. The old law is gone. A new law established a new high priest with a new sacrifice in a new place. So he is a mediator of a completely new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. A death occurred when an animal was slaughtered under the old covenant. A death has occurred under this new covenant, and that covers their sins that they committed even in the first covenant. Verse 16, this is important. For where, where a will is involved, and we're talking about end of life, right? An estate plan, a will, um, a document. These have been around for ages that tells what's going to happen with your belongings when you're no longer living. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. In other words, when you have a will, it doesn't go into force until you're, you die. It, it only matters once you're dead. And the same thing is true here with Jesus. Where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at the death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. There was death. There was a death involved in those animals and those sacrifices. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. So everything was sanctified by blood. And that was the distribution of the benefits of the will. A death occurred. The distribution of the benefits occurs, and the blood sanctifies. So in the same way, the new covenant is established and goes into force on the death 
of the one who made the promise, and that's Jesus. And his blood sanctifies everything about our life. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin requires blood. Paul writes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of grace is eternal life. Where there is sin, there must be a recompense. There must be a death. There must be blood. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So these earthly representations of heavenly things, a tabernacle, a temple, a holy place, a most holy place, all of those had to be sanctified and purified with blood. If the copies, if the representations require blood, then surely the heavenly realities must be purified and sanctified with blood as well. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and so it was necessary for the heavenly things to be purified. Verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, but that, he, but then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. So Jesus fixes all these problems. Purifying and sanctifying everything with blood, done. Purifying and sanctifying the actual heavenly reality that these things represent, done. He dwells with God on our behalf, bringing his blood to the offering place. And most importantly, it only had to happen one time. Only had to happen once. High priests had to do it all the time. For Jesus, only once, because it's more perfect, because it's better. Um, <clears throat> so, wasn't to offer uh, himself repeatedly, because uh, then he would have to suffer repeatedly. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and then after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So now we have this beautiful hope that we're leading into chapter 10 with, this hope of what's coming next. Jesus entered into that holy place, into heaven through his death, bringing his blood, standing in our place and before the Father, uh, purifying the better temple, the better tabernacle, the better holy place, the heavenly one. And it leaves us to understand that a man dies once and then comes judgment. Jesus died once, but he's coming back. He's coming back to bring us home, to complete that story to bring us to be with him. Well, that's chapter 9. Chapter 10, we will get into that sacrifice and a little more detail uh, building on chapter 9. And then from that point on, this book takes a bit of a different turn. Hebrews takes a bit of a different turn because we're going to use that as the jumping off point to talk about faith and Christian living. The author has almost completed the argument that he set out to make about Jesus being better than the Old Testament, the old law, the old covenant. Jesus bringing in a new law and a better covenant. And from that point on, the question is, what do we do about that? How do we live? How does that change the way we see the world and the way that we interact 
with the world, with God, with those around us. All that stuff starts chapters 10 and 11, and we'll talk about that next time. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you then.